The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Open Rocky's latest word process thought transfer service and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 126 with guest Rocky Lotka, recorded live Friday, August 12, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose most difficult decision last Thursday was boxers or briefs, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Thank you. And welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I am Carl Franklin, and I'm here on the East Coast of the United States, and as always, my partner on the West Coast of North America, Richard Campbell. How are you? I'm having a great time, man. Crazy, crazy week. What's crazy about it? Well, started on the weekend, actually. I popped down to Kim Tripp's place for a party. Yeah. And in the middle of the party, Don Box walks in, plunks himself down, and holds court. The discussion of the day, which took over the whole party. And why was wouldn't wh- it? Yeah. yeah, and why wouldn't it? Would, would the discussion of the day was to whether or not relational databases were actually necessary anymore. <laughs> Come on. And, can, and I'm at Kim Tripp's place, right? I mean, we're talking about the sequel queen. And there's Don's topic of the day. He wants to talk about where if we have a transactional file system and we have index server, what do we need SQL server for anymore? Wow. Yeah. Subtle, huh? <laughs> so yeah. it was actually a great discussion, a tough discussion. went on for hours, but uh, it was really uh, made you think. And I guess that's what Don was after. You just can't get Don and Kim in the same room with alcohol, <laughs> you know, not expect something like that to happen. <laughs> I actually wish I could have been there. That sounds like a lot of fun. It, it was a lot of fun. And uh, Bob Bookman was there and Ted Neward, too. I mean, a lot of uh, great folks together. Wow. When did they finally kick you out? Uh, we, uh, Ted had his, his sons over as well, and they were playing Xbox. So we ended up towards the end of the party playing Burnout 3, uh, crashing fire trucks into large intersections. 
not the most intellectual pursuit, but just a howl of fun. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we were out of there after midnight, and uh, uh, Ted was nice enough to put me up for the night, and I drove back in the morning. Well, uh, you know, the reason that uh, Jeff said that joke about last Thursday, because it was my uh, my birthday. It was, too. Happy birthday, buddy. Yeah, I'm 24, <laughs> man. <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, 38. Good there Lord. You, go. you and me both. Yeah. The uh, Everybody's asked me, what'd you do for your birthday? And I'm like, I'm trying to lay low, man, you know, because uh, I'm trying... After 21, birthdays become a reminder of that the fact that you're getting old. Yeah, you, you really go down to only decade recognition. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm really not into the whole celebrating the birthday thing. And uh, quite honestly, that's why I forgot to give my wife a present last year and the year before and the year before. It's, uh, you right. Know, I'm, I'm not, it's not that I'm absent-minded or anything. It's just that, you know, I'm doing it as a favor to her so that she doesn't have to be reminded of how old she's getting. Did she actually buy that? What do you mean by what? <laughs> Actually buy that. That's why you didn't get her a gift? That is why I didn't get her a gift. I'm doing it as a courtesy <laughs> to her, man. <laughs> I expect the same. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, we're having a big bash for your 40th. That I could do. Yeah. That I could definitely do. Of course, I'm going to have to last up to like 150 shows to do that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I've been getting a lot of email lately that uh, we haven't been too technical lately because um, we, you know, we've been doing a lot of sort of high level things about new pro new features uh, coming out, new technologies that are coming out. Yeah, well, we're headed towards a launch here. So that's sort of the focus, right? So uh, here's a good example of this. Um, Andy Anderson sent us this email. Hi, I just want to say that you have a great show and I'm trying to catch on listening to most of them. But some comments. The current show is great, but I would like to see a new separate show just in the way you did with Monday. What I would like to see is a show that is even more technically focused. The current .NET Rocks has lots of talking about non-coding stuff like conferences, personal events, gossips, and that's fine and interesting. So what I would see is a hardcore .NET Rocks where you, for an entire episode, focus on one or two products or technologies in real in-depth instead of general overviewing talks like what you have in .NET Rocks. Like having a dedicated show just to focus on Rocky's CSLA framework, hearing, <laughs> hearing from users of it, from Rocky, strengths, weakness, really focused, in-core depth focus. Uh, you could also focus on issues like code generators, frameworks, solutions to serious issues, data access, caching, large sites, site structures, best practices, remoting. Andy. Well, what do you think of that, Richard? I think we're pretty technical already, but you're right. We have been doing more generalized shows lately, mostly because we are headed into another conference season, and that's what's on everybody's minds right now. True. I, I like to think we do a pretty good mix, and maybe we, you know, like like uh, like this guy is uh, pointing out, Andy is saying that you're right. Lately, it has been pretty much uh, non-technical. And it's very interesting that he uh, um, said that we should make a show just to focus on Rocky's CSLA framework. That, in fact, is what we're doing today. There you go. Yeah. So, and uh, and I also want to tell you that um, we lined up Rocky to be the guest about this before I had even read this email. So it was a fortuitous for Andy that uh, this week's show is, is uh, going to be right up his alley. I would throw out one other comment along those lines, which is that it's actually really tough to do detailed technical content in this format. It, it's got to be a little broad. 
Yeah, it does. I'm not going to read code to you over the air. Right. And uh, it, it, there is room for a good mix. But anyway, I would just suggest going back, listening to uh, to uh, all the shows, and I think you'll see that the, that we have a good mix. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and introduce our guest, shall we? Now, I want to tell you that uh, our guest was going to be uh, somebody different, Steve Swartz, um, but something came up and he couldn't make it, and we're rescheduling him for November, I believe. And uh, so I called up Rocky and I said, hey, Rocky, what are you doing tonight? Uh, you know, would you like to uh, do the show? And, you know, we wanted to get a, a little bit more into your CSLA framework and a bit more technical. And he said, uh, sure. Yeah, that sounds good. So let me just introduce Rocky Latka for probably about the fifth time, I think. Rockford Latka is the author of numerous books, including the Expert Visual Basic.net and C Sharp Business Objects books. He is a Microsoft software legend regional director, MVP, and a member of the Ionetta Speakers Bureau. Rocky speaks at many conferences and user groups around the world and is a columnist for MSDN Online as well. Rocky is the principal technology evangelist for Magenic Technologies, one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners dedicated to solving today's most challenging business problems using 100% Microsoft tools and technology. Will you please welcome again Mr. Rocky Latka? How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Carl. Thanks. I wouldn't miss your birthday show for the world. It's not my birthday show, man. I'm I'm not. Uh, you know, when I go to Chili's, I tell people it's not my birthday. All right, I don't want the clapping and the cake and stuff, man. Let's just forget I even said it. <laughs> I, I still think we should have probably sung "Happy Birthday." I, I think you might be right, Rocky. No, no, please, please. <laughs> we, no. You know what? There's no point in doing it because he'll edit it out anyway. That's right. We have the power of the edit. There you go. So what have you been up to, Mr. Latka? Well, I have been doing all sorts of fun things. I've been uh, playing with uh, CSLA.net, and I've been playing with .NET 2 and Visual Studio 2005. And I, In fact, I've even been off playing with data sets and seeing what the non-object world is up to these days. Yeah. The non-object object world. So have you come to any new uh, revelations in that regard? Well, you know, a lot of the new data set features and capabilities are interesting. And uh, if they work the kinks out of them before release, they, they could be useful to a lot of people. But I got to say that, that all of the things that I'm doing over there with data sets are, are just reinforcing uh, to me uh, the benefits of objects. <laughs> right. And uh, to anybody who isn't familiar with uh, what Rocky's talking about, uh, he has produced a, a series of books going back to VB6, or maybe even before that. Was it before VB6? Uh, all, all the books. The first one was VB5. VB5, okay. Wow. So Rocky's uh, area of expertise is writing um, object frameworks with with business objects and using them for data structures and for modeling the real world and, and uh, binding and, you know, in all aspects of your applications. And I guess he's really slayed a lot of the dragons that uh, that people run up against. And at one point, uh, he decided, you know, um, there's a lot of stuff here that, that we're reusing. I'm going to just make a framework. And so he built this framework of base classes that, uh, are, that you can use in VB.net now uh, called CSLA.net. And that framework comes with his book. So it's not a separate product that he sells. You get it for free if you buy the book. 
And so, uh, you know, contrary to that is the data set centric model of architecting uh, data that exists in the middle tier and in business objects where uh, you sort of either create objects that have data sets as members or you uh, try to derive from data set and stick your own logic in there. And so I guess that's uh, that's the issue. It's the business object model versus the data set model. Yeah, really, I, I look at it uh, that the world really comes in two flavors. It's either you're um, striving to be object-oriented in, in terms of managing your business logic or, or you're uh, um, pursuing kind of more of a data-centric or, or uh, you know, really trying to extend the relational model uh, into into memory in your computer. Yeah. And then if Don Box is right, maybe the relational model is dead. I don't know. Yeah, I <laughs> But you know, a lot of people build apps that way. They start with a table and work outward. Well, yes, they do. And and in fact, uh, there, there's no doubt that the majority of software uh, is created and written using a data-centric model, either using data tables and data sets, uh, or there are other similar toolkits out there that, um, you know, alternate generators that create data sets or, or things that are like data sets. And people find that to be very intuitive. And I, I think the reason is that we're all... In, the, the, the relational mindset is ingrained in uh, our thought process. It, it's hard to find a programmer that can't at least bring data into the third normal form I- intuitively. Yeah. And so it's kind of natural to extend that, I think, into the you know, your actual software development, too. I had a woman come up to me at Dev Connections. Um, I did a, I did an entire end-tier application architecture session, sort of in one day, which was all based on data sets. And uh, she came up to me afterwards and she said, "You know, I talked to Rocky about, um, you know, whether we should, you know, how we should architect our app." And he offered, you know, his book and his solution, told us about it, and we did it. And it just took a really long time. It was a lot of extra effort, and now we have an application. And so she was there wondering, you know, whether or not, you know, she's sort of peering over the fence looking at the, what the other side is doing. And, uh, you know, that's that's really true. I mean, that's the that's the payoff the, or the trade-off, right, is that, you know, the data set world, so many things are just sort of automatic uh, and with, you know, when you're, uh, but you, but you give up some control and with the business object world, you spend a lot more time on architecture and, uh, being more explicit in what you're going to do, but, uh, but it takes longer and there's more chances for you to, you know, do something stupid. Isn't that yeah, true? I think there's probably some truth to that because, it, well, there's no doubt that to go down an object oriented road you do end up writing uh, more code, at least initially, um, compared to the data-centric approach. Yeah. But I, I'm convinced in the long run that the object approach pays off in making your code more maintainable, more agile, yeah. and actually, over the life of your system, reduces the amount of code and effort involved. Right. Uh, and it's always a decision point for people, you know, which way they should go for any given application, um, you know, some applications, 
you, you know, are, are prone to one architecture and others are prone to another, I, I would imagine. Don't you think that's true? Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you know, people often ask me what kind of applications CSLA is suited for and what kinds it's not. And, you know, my primary background comes from creating uh, interactive business systems, you know, things like order entry and inventory management and mm -hmm. uh, things where, where there's a, a user sitting there interacting with the system. Yeah. Uh, it's commonly called OLTP, right. Online Transaction Processing. And so a lot of my energies in designing CSLA went into supporting that particular model. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, if you look at a typical business system, uh, there's a lot of what I guess you'd probably call maintenance screens, right? Just right. basically editing trivial little lookup tables and yeah. and there's virtually no logic there. Right. And so at that point, it's really hard to say that the data set is worse than object yep. because there's nothing there anyway, right? Yeah, there's not. That's right. And but it's when you get to the actual, the interesting parts of the application where yeah. you're managing your inventory or whatever, where there's complicated relationships and logic, right. then objects really shine. Yeah. It's really more of a mature uh, development model. It's this recognition that, that software is going to persist over time and that different people are going to work on it over time, that needs are going to change over time, and you've got to be able to support all of that. Well, I th and I think that's... Really, that's why I recommend that if you go down the object approach, that even your maintenance screens get created with objects because even if it is a little extra effort, that way you've got a consistent model and it makes it easier to do the long-term maintenance. So, you don't, yeah. you don't want to bring a new developer on six months or, or two years from now and say, hey, we need to make this change, and by the way, you're going to have to learn like two or three different programming models to work on different parts of this thing. Yeah. Well, you know, the, thing, the question that's on everyone's mind is that, well, I already have, you know, the .NET framework. I already have, uh, you know, tools for creating properties and methods and classes and, you know what? What? What all is your framework going to give me? And that's what I really wanted to dive into here for the next, uh, oh, I don't know, forty minutes or so. Is you know what are the what are the base classes in there, and what are the problems that they overcome? Yeah, I mean that too is a pretty common question because .NET has, depending on who you talk to, like eight or ten thousand classes. Just yeah. .NET alone, and. It's a pretty valid question to wonder why you'd need more. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I do think that you know, there are some things to... Well, basically, if you look at the .NET framework, it's, it's a generic programming platform yeah. you know, that allows you, theoretically, to do almost anything. And when we sit down to create a business system, uh, you know, our focus is narrowed. And we blatantly ignore the vast majority of the .NET framework. Yeah. And the reality is that there are parts of it that are really useful, like reflection and uh, remoting and some of the security components, um, data binding, that you, you want to use, but you really don't want to have to write that code over and over again to do those things. Right. And that's where, that, that's where a framework comes in. 
So let's dig into it. What are some of the uh, the classes? Well, I think the best way to approach it is to kind of look at it um, from a feature uh, perspective. Sure, goal-oriented. Um, I'm all over that. I'm all about goal orientation, man. All right. <laughs> um, well, first, I, the, the SLA kind of allows you to create objects that both understand how to interact with the database, in other words, how to manage persistence, um, get their data in and out of whatever kind of database you might have, okay. relational or otherwise. And at the same time, your object ultimately has to be used by a Windows form or a web form. Right. And so if you, if you think about it that way, these objects almost have like a split personality. And let's tackle the, the UI side first. Sure. And when you look at that, um, it's my view that you want to minimize the amount of code in the user interface, and be it Windows or web. And the reason is that the user interface is by far the most volatile part of a typical application. Yeah, and, and binding, especially in .NET, as we've seen, you know, just stretching out beyond the grid, it gets pretty complex. And, well, well, and the interesting thing, you know, we were talking about whether objects were, were more work or not. And prior to .NET, they were a lot more work. Yeah, definitely. couldn't do data binding to objects at all. Right. And now in uh, .NET 1.1 and 1.0, um, Windows forms data binds to objects pretty nicely. Yeah. Web forms, it's okay. Yeah. And when we look forward into .NET 2 um, and some of the features that are coming uh, with Visual Studio 2005, all of a sudden data binding to objects becomes really, really sexy. Right. Right? Way beyond uh, anything that we've got today. So that's, that's pretty compelling. So part of what the framework does is uh, adds extra support for data binding. Right. And... .NET by itself can, can data bind to essentially any object. You, you can bind controls on Windows or web forms into an object with no extra work. But what you'll find is that you won't get the behaviors you really want. Right. In other words, sometimes when you're updating the object, it won't show up on the screen. Exactly. All, so in order to overcome that, you have to implement a set of interfaces. On your collections, so here we'll... we'll uh, what are those interfaces? Let's just get into it. Well, we'll help your reader get into the details here. Yeah. Uh, on the collection, there's iBinding List, which is an interface used by data binding to uh, both allow the UI to control the way the list works to some degree, in other words, filtering and, and sorting. But then it also declares an event that allows the collection to tell data binding when anything has changed inside of the collection. Yeah. And that, that interaction is very important, and an iBinding list is what does that. And that is in 1.0 and 1.1 we're talking. This has nothing to do with the binding list in 2.0, right? Well, is, no, it actually... I know, it, I know it does, but you're talking about 1.0 and 1.1 here. I am. Yeah. In, in 2.0, um, that interface continues to be important. Right. But in order to use it, uh, I think most people are going to uh, 
use the new generic called yeah. binding list of T. Yes. Um, but that's all that is is a generic wrapper around the same interface. Very cool. And I mean, which is important for for people to realize because you know if you've been writing objects and collections and you know for the last two or three years, um, they'll continue to work in .NET 2.0. Yeah. Because the interface is the same. It's just now there's an easier way um, for you to write your own collections. Now. And that, that, so that's the key one for collections. And doing that turns out to be kind of difficult in 1.1, right? Implementing that interface, especially in VB. Well, is that right? Yeah. So <laughs> there, there is that. Um, yeah, and, and I, I suppose I should make it clear that the, my CSLA framework exists in both VB and C sharp versions. But and the only real difference between the two um, is that the VB version has a teeny bit of C-sharp in it. And the reason that it has that is because um, when you go to declare an event in .NET 1, then and, and you start using the object, say, from Windows Forms, if you ever try to serialize the object, which is to convert it into a byte stream, uh, it'll actually the serializer will attempt to serialize the form as well. It'll yeah. follow your event uh, link, the delegate link. It'll follow it right up to the form. Yuck. And to overcome this, um, in .NET 1, only C Sharp has the syntax to pull that off. Yeah. And in .NET 2, uh, both VB and C Sharp have the same syntax. And so uh, and I've got a couple articles on my blog actually showing the code um, in both VB and C Sharp on how to do this. And so the, this issue goes away. But yes, there, there's a little complexity in terms of, of declaring the list changed event. And so it's actually declared in a C Sharp base class, and then the rest of CSLA inherits from that, or at least the collection portion does. Um, and I, I use the standard .NET pattern where the base class raises the event, but then exposes a protected uh, method called onListChanged. Yeah, I do that religiously in my components. Uh, this might, might, you know, this might be a nice little tangent to go off on here about this pattern. Um, it's kind of confusing when you're looking at just a form, for example, and you look at all those overloads and you see all these virtual subs that say on and then the name of, you know, the, the event. And, uh, you know, because they lo look like they relate directly to events and well, it's very natural for a programmer to wonder what's the difference between handling that in an overrides and actually handling the event. And, and I think actually there's probably two reasons uh, why this is the way it is. Um, one, of course, is, is purely technical. Uh, when you declare an event in a class, it's not possible for a subclass to raise that event. The event can only be raised within the class that it was declared. Yeah. And and yet many times you want to allow events to be raised uh, in derived classes. Yeah. And so the, the pattern that Microsoft came up with was to do exactly this where you have a you know an on such and such method and when you call that then that triggers the event. Right, so it's called internally by the base class to raise the event, and the sub does no more than raise the event. So 
So this is the way that you can modify the behavior of controls and forms is by hooking an event. And if you want to eat the event and not allow it to, to go any further, you can just do nothing or do whatever you want to do in place of it. And then you can call my base dot on whatever it is on enter on leave uh, unchanged or whatever and, and pass uh, your E parameter. And then you can do some code after. So you get control before the event. You can call the event yourself by calling the base class implementation and then some code after. Right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing, the other reason that this occurred is kind of a broader issue in that .NET was designed to be an object-oriented framework. And yet it has to exist in an event-driven world, namely right. Windows. Yeah. And when you, especially if you look at the VB heritage, where things are very much centered around the event model. Right. Um, they needed to carry that event model forward, partially because it is a natural fit for Windows, but partially because you know the majority of Windows developers are VB developers, and so there is you know very important that they make that familiar model carry forward. And at the same time, I would warn VB programmers who are just getting into VBNet not to, uh, you know, jump to handling an event as the first way to solve a problem because that often leads to lots of duplicated code. Um, more often than not, you want to be handling uh, these virtual subs inside the object itself that you, that, that you want to change the behavior of. Well, certainly they are faster, too. Overloading. Yeah. Uh, or sorry, overriding the method is uh, typically faster than handling the event. But yep. all of that said, it's important to also look forward to Visual Studio 2005 mm -hmm. and the whole partial class concept yeah. and realize that the use of events, um, it's much easier to use events with partial classes than it is to try and override methods. Mm. And uh, so I think while, while your advice you know, is good for today, it might not be so good necessarily um, in Visual Studio 2005. Not that I disagree with you, Rocky, but why? Well, the primary issue is that if the, in Visual Studio 2005, what happens for like a Windows form or a web form uh, is that the IDE is generating a whole bunch of code for you. And it's much of the same code that it generates today, but they're generating, you know, obviously, some new and different things, too. And all of that code is generated into a file that you don't normally see. So it'd be called, like, form1.designer.vb. And that's a hidden file by default. And your code for the form would go into form1.vb. Right. And you won't... You won't you won't any longer see the hidden code region, right? It's, unless you want to. Unless you want to, but, but normally it's just not even there. Yep. And the thing is that your coding, your code that you're writing, gets merged with the designer file before it gets compiled. Literally, they just get appended to each other. Right. And so if Visual Studio, for instance, um, inserted a method or if they override a method uh, in the designer code, you can't have a method of the same name in your form code, too. Right. Because it, it doesn't auto-merge that, right? You'd actually get a duplicate method um, 
compiler error. And so in order to avoid that issue, um, the normal approach is that your, your form1.vb file will end up um, primarily just handling events. Right. Yeah, and then just to summarize, if the if any one of the files in the partial class is already overriding a virtual sub, you can't re-override it in another piece of that class. So, and uh, breaking out, um, you know, a call into another sub, I suppose, is okay. Do you know what I mean? You could always just go in and either modify the existing partial class, the, the override, or call up, break it out into a sub in your new class. But the problem is that a lot of the reason you have these split classes is for code generation because the designer generates the code, and if it, that code ever needs to be regenerated, you've, you've lost those hooks. So, And right, you don't right. even know it because you don't see it. Right. So but whereas if you have multiple event handlers for the same thing, it doesn't matter at all. It's going to work the same. Right. And an event handler is going to use a delegate, which is a little bit of added overhead as opposed to just overriding a virtual sub, right? I don't think this is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, going to matter much unless you're calling those events um, in, a, in a high degree of rep repetitiveness, right? No, that's right. Well, and, and here, you, I think you need to draw a line typically between Windows and web development. Because um, if you're building a Windows system, all of these events are firing typically on the user's desktop, and so they're only competing with themselves. Whereas on the web, um, the overhead of the event firing arguably can be a bigger deal because it's a shared server resource. to the show, you've heard me talk about ASP.NET tools from Telerik at T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. They've recently released a new version of their RAD control suite, Q3 2005, and I'd like to tell you about it. Telerik RAD control suite is the most innovative and comprehensive tool set for ASP.NET development, allowing professionals to build web solutions with the UI richness and responsiveness of desktop applications. The latest milestone release, Q3 2005, is the first on the market to bring full XHTML 1.1 and accessibility compliance with WCAG Level A and Section 508, thus enabling developers to build standards-compliant web applications easier and faster than ever. Added to this are key updates to four of Telerik's most popular products, RAD Editor, RAD Grid, RAD Tree View, and RAD Rotator. RAD Controls is also available with an annual subscription option for all updates and new components added to the suite within a year of your purchase. Hey, did you know the .NET Rocks website was done with the Telerik menu? That's right, if you use the menu on the left-hand side, 
you're using Telerik's products. So go check them out at www.telerik.com. So let's get back to uh, CSLA. When that that is one of the first things that I show um, is the binding binding base. I can't remember what you call it, bindable business object base or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do show people how to use that to to make their own custom collections instead of using the standard collection base. And it literally is one line of code changing the inherit statement yep. um, in a in a bindable collection. So that's, uh, and, and as you mentioned before, you actually had to write that in C-sharp because of the, the, uh, the way to split out the delegate and serialize it properly. Yes. Because the right. Windows form isn't serializable. Um, and then uh, the next part of your framework that would give you the most, uh, I don't know, the coolest feature would be what? Well, the, that's collections. The other main... Um Avenue, of course, is that you might create a single object, like an order or a customer, you know, which is not a collection, it's just a single entity. Sure. And so the framework has a class called business base that you inherit from. And okay. business base taps into quite a bit of functionality, uh, both data binding, in this case, uh, interfaces like iEditable Object and iDataError Info, um, and it raises Yet another uh, event that's declared in C sharp to indicate that the object data has changed. You mentioned a couple interfaces. Let's just clarify where those interfaces are. Are they yours or are they .NET? Uh, these are .NET. iEditable Object and iDataErrorInfo are both, uh, I believe, out of the component model, system.component model. Okay. And yeah. so what, what's the benefit of using your base class over just implementing that interface? And plugging well, in the, it, it's really it really comes down to good object-oriented programming. If you're creating, say, a class that's supposed to contain all of the business code for a customer, um, good object-oriented programming would say that your class should only have code dealing with uh, customer behavior. Yeah. And so if you end up also implementing iEditable Object and iDataErrorInfo and some of the other things that CSLA does, it's quite realistic that you could have more plumbing code, you know, just to support .NET stuff, than you would code dealing with being a customer. Well, And that's just bad object-oriented programming. It seems to me, though, that if these, thing are, these things are interfaces, iEditable object, for example, then the reason that they're interfaces is because the implementation is going to differ from object to object. Is that not the case? Well, you, you might think so, but... In this case, um, we're able to make all of the business objects fundamentally work the same. And in fact, with, with iEditable Object, the reason is this. That interface exists to support in-place editing in a grid. And it allows the grid to tell your object that it's about to edit you and that the user either pressed escape so the row should reset itself or the user arrowed up or down in which case the row should keep any changed values. So that seems to me to have nothing to do with the object itself. Well, you wouldn't think so, except that uh, it's my view that objects should know how to undo themselves. 
Right. And, and in particular, this is because your, your typical uh, Windows application has a cancel button on the form. Right. And so the user can come in, change a whole bunch of information in your object, and then click cancel. And what, what happens at that point? Yeah. So you might say, well, maybe I'll just discard the object. Right. That's not a good idea because there might be other references to it. Exactly. And so what you really want is for the object to somehow restore itself to its previous values. And so that's another key feature of CSLA is that all of the objects that inherit from business base and all of the collections that inherit from business collection base all understand how to reset themselves back to a, a previous state if you want them to. So that, that also is what, what I use for i-editable objects. Okay. You did mention this in uh, in an earlier show that we did, that uh, uh, that you did this with reflection, and as opposed to, say, serialization and deserialization, which would create a new object, which would break your existing references. So you did right. this with reflection. You actually enumerate all of the properties and make a, and, and you save you save the original versions of those properties, much like the data set does, actually. Um, yes, that's true. Although I actually support um, N levels of undo, which for a lot of UIs doesn't matter, but several times I've ended up creating UIs that have nested modal forms or other yeah. fairly sophisticated models. And mm. so being able to actually edit the object at, at different stages and then undo it to certain points whereas the data set only has one level of undo. Rocky, I, I have a specific question about a particular issue that anybody who's done any binding with text boxes knows about, which is when you've got text boxes bound and you've got some way to move the cursor through, the, through a set uh, or a collection, like, say, a list box or something, and uh, you just make a change in a text box and then you want to go ahead and and uh, commit that change by, you know, save save the changes, let's say, by pressing a button. Let's say you're just doing a maintenance screen. The uh, the edit won't, won't have taken place. Isn't that true? With, because with text boxes, uh, uh, you don't, just by moving off the text box, you don't end the current edit. So, well, so the edit um... hasn't been committed unless you actually move to the to another uh, to another record with a data set that's true, but with objects not. That's interesting. So the way that the data binding works um, is that well, at least with uh, CSLA objects, is as soon as you tab off from a field, the value goes from that field from the control uh, into the object immediately. So what uh, are you hooking a, a a changed event like every time you you press a keystroke or you hook are, are you hooking a, a, lo no, no, a it's, lost it's focus? Only when you, it's only when the control loses focus that this occurs. Okay, is that something that you're responsible for, or is that just part of the binding behavior? Uh, no, it's actually just part of binding behavior. Interesting. But you can see um, in the data model why they don't do that. They want to wait for all the changes to happen to the entire record before they go writing it back. In the, in the data set, that's the case, yeah. 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 And it's interesting, when it's in a grid, you get it when you move from cell to cell, it ends the current edit. And uh, But if you're just, you know, if you have text boxes bound, 
you're, you're, you have to do an end current edit on the binding context. And I, I have gone to, uh, gone into situations where I've created a text box that hooked the on leave event and then checked to see if there was a binding to the text property. And if it was ended the current edit and I ran into all kinds of problems with binding, uh, with that text box. Cause there are times when I wanted that behavior and times when I didn't want that behavior. And I got to say that, that luckily, none of these issues happen with objects. <laughs> that's really, really cool. <laughs> that's great. No, that's great. Um, yeah, so yeah, with an object, as soon as you or the control loses focus, the value gets put into the object, and then if you click like your apply button or whatever, then um, the code behind the apply button is typically maybe two or three lines of code that just tells the object that like the changes and that it should save them. And uh, the object is responsible for saving itself into the database and away you go. Mm -hmm. And the other, the final main feature um, is a thing called broken rules, which has changed quite a bit. I actually, when I, I wrote the books, essentially you can think of the framework in the books as being version 1.0. And the framework is currently at version uh, 1.5. Okay. So uh, there's been a number of enhancements since the book came out. And the current broken rules actually allows you to essentially implement all of your rules uh, as a set of methods that conform to a specific delegate signature. Mm -hmm. And rules, in this case, really what we're talking about are validation uh, behaviors, you know, like a field is required or max length or one field has to be bigger than another. Right. And one of the consistent things with, with validation rules is that they all ultimately evaluate to true or false. Yeah. And so it's totally realistic to create a generic delegate signature and then not generic like in the 2005 sense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just in the... A, de a delegate signature for a method that can implement literally any rule. And so that's what I've done um, in the current framework. And so you can implement all of your rules as a set of um, methods that return true or false. And then you register those rules with the object. Um, as basically, when the object gets instantiated, uh, you loop through uh, and, and say, well, the uh, name field is required and has a max length of 50, and the description field is required and has a max length of 8,000, um, and the you know, start date must be greater than the end date. And you register all of these rules. And then from that point on, to a large degree, the object keeps track of whether it's uh, in a valid state or not yeah. on your behalf. Yeah. And it's kind of like the... Uh Kind of like what they're doing in in data sets with uh, you, you know the uh, the state the rec the record state or the row state, whether it's been modified, added, uh, unchanged, deleted. Right. To some degree, it's like that. Only um, this is more sophisticated because it's not only implementing those basic con you know, concepts, but also implementing your custom business logic. Yeah. And so as the user tabs off a field, if the field, you know, if they blank a field and tab off, that, that empty string is immediately put into the property. The property, by being set, triggers the 
the uh, appropriate validation rules, not all of them either, just the ones dealing with that property. And then, you know, assuming it was a required field, the CSLA framework actually sets your object into a, and uh, it sets its is valid property to false. And the through the iData error info interface is able to notify the user, the UI, that this particular property is an error. So an error provider, you know, a little red yeah. exclamation mark can appear. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Do you have a similar con uh, concept to the um, the row state or or an object state? Like, what if you what if you delete an object from a collection? Do you actually delete it, or do you just set a marker that says this one should be deleted when I go to update my database? Or do you you just leave all of that stuff up to the user, up to the programmer rather? I uh, know the framework directly handles that, and and it's actually. None of the above. <laughs> okay. Um, business collection base uh, it ultimately inherits from um, system.collections.collection base. Right. So it is a collection, mm -hmm. but it also internally contains its own private collection of deleted items. Oh, cool. And so when you delete an item from a collection, what happens is that item is physically moved out of the real collection into this private deleted collection. Yeah. And that way, when you ask an object to undo itself, it's able to restore any deleted items back into the original collection. Similarly, it keeps track of um, objects that are added to the collection so that if you reset, you know, undo the uh, collection, it can restore it. Uh, you know, it can remove those uh, newly added ones. When do the deleted ones get cleaned up? Uh, the deleted ones get cleaned up when you save the object. Because obviously they actually need to hang around um, until you uh, ask the object to save itself. And when it um, is in the process of saving itself to the database, um, you know, that, that way the objects know to delete themselves or delete their underlying data. And it's at that point that the objects physically go away in memory as well. That's cool. So, Rocky, you've got a you got a new version coming out for uh, Visual Studio 2005 languages .NET 2.0, right? I'm working on it as we speak. So, what are some of the things we can look forward to in that uh, version? Well, I'm obviously going to take advantage of generics, and so when we look at you know, the, the primary language enhancements for uh, both VB and C sharp coming up is the addition of generics. And so using, like I mentioned earlier, binding lists of T yeah. uh, radically reduces the amount of code that you need to write to create a collection. And so CSLA will have a new base class called um, business list base, which uh, will use binding list of T. And, and so you'll inherit from that now instead of business collection base. And it, it looks to me like it should cut the amount of code you write down uh, by about 70%. Wow. To create a, yeah, to create a collection. And that's the code that you, that you write or that they write? Uh, that they write. Okay. But isn't a lot of that uh, code savings just because of the fact that it's a generic, not the, necessarily the fact that it's uh, uh, CSLA? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm making no bones about the fact that I'm exploiting the new features. That's right. the whole point. Right. And the the thing is, though, if you were looking at CSLA in 1.1, you know, that, that, that this is one of the one of the best reasons to uh, to move along with it is that you get all these great features and all the features of 2005. You know, there's other things in 2005 uh, that we'll tap into. For instance, uh, the new data binding capabilities are, are just extraordinary. The yeah. ability to literally drag your CSLA business class onto a form and have it either draw a grid or a, uh, a detail form for you. Yeah, that's fabulous. Uh, that, that stuff works beautifully. And uh, you know, there's some minor tweaks to CSLA to make that work, but you know, very, very trivial. And you know, so when you really look at it from a CSLA perspective, um, I, I was able to convert the CSLA 1.5 code just by itself to run in .NET 2.0 in an afternoon. Huh. And you know, so a lot of what I've been doing is, is trying to figure out ways to uh, preserve as much backward compatibility as possible while right. still offering up the ability to tap into generics uh, to reduce the amount of code for a collection or for a business class and uh, to tap into the new data binding. The price of but, software success, though, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, one of the, we haven't really talked about this, but one of the things that CSLA, one of the key features is it's got a concept in it called a data portal that allows your object to persist themselves to the database. And the data portal abstracts the network. So the, the one in the book uses remoting. And obviously, that, that's wonderful today, but looking forward, we want to be able to use uh, Indigo. Indigo, right, which remoting is And, and even today, some with. people want to use web services, or um, you know, Yuval would, would tell you that if you're not using uh, enterprise services, then you're creating toy applications. Well, that's you, Val. <laughs> um, I just had to get that dig in there. You just had and, to. And uh, so I've actually been working a, a lot on the data portal. So the in CSLA 2, the data portal is going to be um, configurable so you can tell it to do the data access locally or to do it remotely through remoting, remotely through web services, remotely through enterprise services, or remotely through Indigo. Yeah, nice. And, and the really cool thing, of course, is that like moving moving to Indigo for people using CSLA uh, will be there won't be any code changes required because the data portal will entirely abstract it. Hey, uh, Rocky, jump me back a bit. Uh, our friend John Bristow asked a question in the chat room, too. Uh, he wondered if you found a performance improvement using generics in CSLA 2.0. Well, I can't say that I've done any extensive performance testing. So I can't give a definitive answer to that. Um, however, other people that have done testing using generic collections uh, have seen you know, some pretty dramatic performance improvements, and the new uh, business list base, because it uses a generic under the covers, um, does in fact hold everything in a strongly typed list. So I would expect that CSLA's 
going to see the same, you know, some of the figures I've seen are like 60 times performance improvement um, in dealing with collections and lists. So, so, yes, I would expect to see a lot. Yeah. Here's another question for you. Um, the d- Can you use the, the class designer in uh, VS2005 using your CSLA.net base classes? Does that work well together? Uh, unfortunately, no, not really. And the reason is that the class designer is really designed around simple or simple uh, classes. And CSLA's classes that you create tend to be a little more uh, complex. I, I maybe I'm speaking a little too harshly. Um, the reality is that you can, in fact, use the class designer. But I haven't found personally that it seems to save me a whole lot of effort. Um, okay. I'm a bigger fan of code generators. And how so, about how about productivity enhancers like Code Rush? Uh, things like Code Rush or uh, Code Smart, other you know similar tools code that smart. allow you to yeah. create customized templates are tremendously valuable. Yeah. As an alternative to code, you know, some people just don't like code generators. I understand that. Um, and so being able to create a full-blown CSLA business object template and insert it in by like typing four characters or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, like some of those tools like Code Rush do. Yeah. Really, really cool. Would you, uh, would you be into getting together with the Code Rush people to put, uh, your templates in there? I think that'd be very interesting. That'd be very interesting, wouldn't it? That would be cool. Maybe we could hook you guys up. What other what code generators uh, do you have you used and do you like? And you don't have to you know consider this a plug or anything, but I mean seriously, I mean what ones have you looked at and what ones do you like? Well, um, I've looked at and a lot of people use CodeSmith, mm-hmm. and I, as far as I know, CodeSmith actually comes with templates for CSLA uh, one point five. Cool. What is the other one? LLBL Gen? Right. I haven't looked at, but a lot of people speak highly of. Declare it is another one. And, um, boy, what else? You know, Magenic, the company I work for, has one that we use as part of our consulting service offering. And, but you know, the, my primary criticism with all of these code generators, it tends to be the same with most uh, object relational mapping tools, is that they tend to focus on that you start with the database schema and create the object based on the database. And good object-oriented design should be behavioral, and so it shouldn't really be based first on the database. Obviously, data is important, but it should be based first um, on the behavior flowing from your use case or your agile XP stories with the user, whatever technique you're using to get the workflow um, and business process from the users, mm. it's that behavior that should be first. And and so my, I guess, disappointment with all of the current generators that I'm aware of is that none of them do that. They all focus on the database first. Yeah. Interesting. What uh, what else do you have planned for? Any, any new features of, um, you know, uh, I know that there's a lot of rewriting of code for uh, to support .NET 2.0, but what about new features that .NET 2.0 makes possible besides the obvious generics? 
uh, maybe maybe sub sub features that because of generics are possible. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily planning on radical enhancements to the framework. Okay. Um, and, and part of the reason I actually blogged about this a little bit. Part of the reason is that um, I, I view CSLA primarily as being part of my book rather than yeah product yeah than a product. And so the you know, basically the book is already pretty big, like around eight hundred fifty <laughs> or eight hundred pages. And yeah. the publishers tell me that I I don't want to make it bigger. Yeah. So stop writing, you, God damn it! <laughs> so anything I do has to fit in my existing page count, and so I'm I'm rearranging, um, you know, the book structure a little bit. Uh, you know, cutting out some of the, uh, you know, like the, the current book in chapter three, it does an overview of reflection and remoting and some things, and I'm just cutting that out. I'll assume people by this point have a clue about how those things work, and that allows me to focus more. But really, a lot of the quote-unquote enhancements that somebody might see um, are because the book will be about CSLA 1.5 yeah. plus generics plus the new data portal plus the new data binding capabilities. The data portal sounds awesome. I mean, the fact that you can uh, use it, use Indigo to, to pass objects around you know, yeah. no matter what to transport, that sounds really cool. Well, the flexibility there is tremendous. Yeah, I'll say. I'm just thinking from a testing point of view, it's going to be killer because you're going to be able to try out all these different transports with your same app and see how it behaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, the flexibility there is, um, it's pretty exciting, I think. And so, on one hand, you might say that that um, it's disappointing, maybe, that, that there's not going to be radical changes. But on the other hand, I, even though I try not to look at CSLA as a product, the reality is that a lot of people use it, uh, you know, as is. Or, or with minor modifications. And so if I radically change it for a 2.0 version, then what does that do to all those people that are using the thing today? Yeah, right. And uh, so I, I feel that I should have at least some level of consistency. And, and I think that's the hallmark of a good framework anyway. I agree. That it should survive at least some reasonable period of time. Yeah. You know, my VB6 framework, you know, which is quite different from the .NET one. Sure. But really started in VB4, believe it or not. <laughs> I was on a VB4 project when I created the framework, and I wrote the first book in VB5. Yeah. And so that, the original um, VB framework, you know, survived for, what, eight years and was fundamentally the same during that entire time. Yeah. And personally, I hope that CSLA.net is, is similar in that, um, you know, yes, it should be enhanced and, and have some nice things added over time, but one would hope that the core of it uh, remains consistent uh, as long as the .NET platform itself doesn't change out from under us. Yeah. It really seems to be like a proof of proper abstraction. Yes, I agree. Sure. And architecture, too. Yeah, the fact that you've got all uh, so many implementations out there using this thing and and uh, all happy campers just in and of itself means I, I'm curious as to why you know this isn't uh, 
something that Microsoft would want to design into their their own uh, component uh, namespace? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I can speculate. Uh, you know, Microsoft, of course, bought Great Plains and then subsequently started working on the Microsoft Business Framework or Foundation or whatever F stood for. Mm-hmm. And which is a pretty lofty goal, what they're trying to accomplish with that project. Mm. And, you know, CSLA or, or similar um, frameworks or tools like this are really, I think, more tactical. You know, well, more fundamental, too, don't you think? I mean, you're, yeah. you're typically, you're making something that can be used in a broad variety of, of applications. Yeah. You know, if you look out there, there, there's not a universal agreement on what kinds of architectures are good? Yeah, by by any means. Yeah, that's um, true. All you got to do is peruse the blog sphere for you know ten yeah. minutes. Just listen to the I, last ten shows, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. There there is no agreement, and right. so for Microsoft to uh, adopt a specific end tier architecture would be a pretty big step on their part, and they would risk even if .NET supported all of the other architectures, the fact that they pick any one as, as being their favorite um, would have the potential of reducing the number of people that want to use .NET. Well, there's the question of, do, by, by supporting it, do they inherently send the message that this is their favorite, or do they just add another tool to the tool chest, which is the way I would see this? Yeah, I wouldn't, a lot, a lot of people would see it the other way, I'm afraid. Hmm. Even people inside of Microsoft, too. I could just see this being a big battle internally to get something like that written. Well, and the other thing, I think, politically, right now, object orientation, and especially the concept, I mean, really distributed computing is moving toward, a, today, this whole service-oriented right. idea of all you pass around is raw data yeah. in message packets. Yeah. And the idea of actually moving objects around the network um, you know, will, will meet violent opposition in certain quarters. Yeah. And uh, it's just not trendy. I, I think it will be again, right? Everything goes in cycles, <laughs> and, and eventually the the hard, ugly limitations of passing raw data around are going to become clear, and people are going to come back and go, "Oh, maybe we should look at this object thing again." And, um, and you can bet, Rocky, we're, this isn't the end of the discussion. We're, uh, you know, we, we we you talked about this at the Dev Connection show that you did. Uh, with Bill Vaughn, and uh, you know, you're not saying that SOA is a bad idea. You're just saying that the, you know there's a lot of hype about it because it's so new, and, and a lot of people don't even understand what it is and what the benefits are, and they can't agree on what it is. Um, but uh, you, you're going to find that uh, I think we're going to be coming back to trying to nail down what kinds of systems lend themselves to a service-oriented architecture, what kind of systems do not. Um, I think that's the real value that uh, in a discussion that we can give our listeners. You know, and over time, hopefully, we'll all discover the answers. I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Well, man, uh, you know, we're coming to the end of the show, and I want to ask you what the coolest thing is that you've downloaded lately. What's the coolest thing, man? The coolest thing I've downloaded lately? Well, I got to say that at the moment, oh, I didn't. Actually, download this. I'm hooked on Battlefield 2. Really? 
Yep. <laughs> so I've been pretty much every night spending at least an hour or two uh, mostly getting blown up. You know, for some reason, I just can't picture you sitting in front of a computer, you know, while the world crumbles around you going, die, die, die. I just can't. <laughs> I do. And I, I, I'm really good in a tank. I got to say that. That's <laughs> are you a Sherman guy? Yes. <laughs> I was always Panzer II partial. What can I tell you? You know, Battlefield is all, uh, or Battlefield 2 is all modern type stuff, so it's uh, a little more you know, current than some of those. And you've been listening to Adventures of the Anti-Monkey Brigade, right, on Mondays? Oh, I have, and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that is great fun. Yeah, Mark and I, and are specifically out of, out of all the group, but Mark and I have really been doing a lot more of the sort of... Uh, you know, uh, audio theater, radio theater kind of stuff. And it really takes a lot of time to put together. So that's probably not w- why we only have, you know, 10 minute spurts here and there, but, uh, boy, that's a, that's a hoot. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks Rocky for, uh, coming on the show. I got to thank you on behalf of myself and, and the listeners out there, Jeff in the sound room and Richard Campbell. Thanks again. You're always uh, welcome here. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to you know, talk to you guys, and obviously, I love this topic, so I had a great time. Thank you. All right, and we'll, we'll I can't wait to see uh, CSLA.net 2.0. In the meantime, you can check out Rocky's latest stuff at Lotka.net, L-H-O-T-K-A.net. Thanks a lot, Rocky. Thank you. All right, we'll see you. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a toy boy. Life is hard.